And let's ask the Lord for his illuminating work through the Holy Spirit. Shall we pray? Gracious God and Father, come upon us now by your power so that what we cannot do in ourselves, you can accomplish and do accomplish. By the power of your Holy Spirit, open our hearts to receive the implanted word, water it by your grace, and cause it to bear much fruit to the glory of your name. So bless us as we worship you now, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We turn in our Bibles to Zephaniah chapter 3. We're going to read the first eight verses of Zephaniah 3. And that's found on page 939. 939. I believe it's the fourth last book in the Old Testament. Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. I think that's how it ends. Page 939, we're going to read the first eight verses. We have before us Lord's Day 4, the last Lord's Day in that section of the Catechism dealing with our guilt and misery. So we're going to see something of our need of grace this afternoon. And we see that also here in these words of the prophet. Hear the word of God. Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled the oppressing city. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Her officials within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves that leave nothing till the morning. Her prophets are fickle, treacherous men. Her, her priests profane what is holy. They do violence to the law. The Lord within her is righteous. He does no injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice. Each dawn he does not fail, but the unjust knows no shame. I've cut off nations. Their battlements are in ruins. I've laid waste their streets so that no one walks in them. Their cities have been made desolate without a man, without an inhabitant. I said, surely you will fear me. You will accept correction, then your dwelling would not be cut off, according to all that I have appointed against you. But all the more they were eager to make all their deeds corrupt. Therefore wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey, for my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger, for in the fire of my jealousy all the earth shall be consumed. That's for the reading of God's holy word. Then we're going to together recite page 204 in our forms and prayers books, page 204, 205. The words to Lord's Day 4, the answers to the questions of Lord's Day 4. There are three of them. Again, keep in mind, Lord's Day 2 is really enough in this section. It does enough to demonstrate the depth of our need of grace. But we do try to wiggle out of that. And so Lord's Day 3 pins us down a little more tightly. And then Lord's Day 4 does the same. So Lord's Day 4, page 204 in our forms and prayers books. But doesn't God do man an injustice by requiring in his law what man is unable to do? No. God created man with the ability to keep the law Man, however, at the instigation of the devil, in willful disobedience, robbed himself and all his descendants of these gifts. 
Will God permit such disobedience and rebellion to go unpunished? Certainly not. He is terribly angry with the sin we are born with, as well as our actual sins. God will, by a just judgment, both now and in eternity, having declared, Cursed is everyone who does not observe and obey all things written in the book of the law. And then, but isn't God also merciful? God is certainly merciful, but he is also just. His justice demands that sin committed against his supreme majesty be punished with the supreme penalty, eternal punishment of body and soul. This the church does believe. Brothers and sisters, in Jesus Christ, our Lord, we have again before us a rather challenging word from the Lord, a word that speaks of our inability, of our weakness, of our frailty, of our fallenness, of the fact that from the very depths of who we are, we are foolish, rebellious, and wicked. And we don't want to accept that. Human nature revolts against this idea. Our very human character says to God that can't be true. Just think of the world in which we live. And just think of how it deals with the question of sin. Because our world does, of course, deal with the question of sin, doesn't it? Our world may not use the word sin. It may not want to use the language that we associate with the Word of God and for good reason, but the world certainly that we speak of, or that we live in rather, speaks of sin. But what is that sin? It is certainly not defying the living God. Our world promotes that. Our world celebrates that. Our world advocates for that. When you think of the things that our society is associated with and the perversions that flow from her and through her, when you think of pride celebrations, pride months, when you think of advertising campaigns using transgendered members or citizens, then you see how very quickly our society sees sin not in light of God's law and word, but in a very different light. In in some respect, we might even say, there is no sin in our culture today. There is no wrong. There is no bad deed. No rebellious act. Just be who you are. Be free. Be happy. Oh, happiness, that's the goal, isn't it? Of everything. Happiness is the greatest good, the most vital importance, the thing that we must never rob anyone of. Everyone must be free to fulfill their pursuit of happiness. And it sounds so very, very appealing to the human nature. It sounds so very lovely to... To all of us, when 
We are young when we're old, it matters not. We think, isn't that lovely? When we're children maybe at home and mom and dad say, now it's time for bed. And we think, I don't want to go to bed on a beautiful day like today. When it's now still sunny outside at bedtime. When it seems like we should be allowed to run in the backyard and enjoy the beautiful weather. And mom and dad say, no, now you have to go to bed. And we think, oh, that's terrible, isn't it? When I'm a parent, we say things like this when we're young. When I'm a parent, I'm never going to make my kids go to bed at a bedtime. I remember saying that when I am a parent, I'm going to let my kids eat ice cream whenever they want. Didn't happen then either. But we, we want to be free. We want to be free because freedom is happiness for us. Freedom is, is freedom come from restraint, freedom from oppression, freedom from the rules and regulations that prevent us from enjoying life. And in that world, there can be no sin. Well, there can be a sin, actually. The only sin that can be committed in a world like ours is the sin of preventing people from enjoying life. It's the sin of keeping people from experiencing blessing. It's the sin of making people unhappy Oh, the greatest sin you can commit in our culture is to offend someone. It's to say something that hurts their feelings. To tell a joke that sends them, that triggers them into traumatic experiences. That's the great sin of our day and of our culture. That's the great sin. Don't make people feel bad because feeling good, that's the greatest good. And now we come out of that culture, out of that world. It's dripping off of our clothes. It's, it smells of us. We smell of it rather. It, it sticks to us. That, that culture we live in, we bring it into church and then we are asked to recite such things as Lord's Day 4. Lord's Day 4 that does not countenance such things, that does not permit us to believe such things. Lord's Day 4, that you might say is, is like the old grandparent, the old grandma or grandpa, that, that they're old school. They see things different. They don't understand the modern world. Except they do, of course. They understand it better than we do. And so does the catechism. Because the catechism understands that in a world like ours, there is no hope, there is no grace. How can there be grace? How can there be salvation? How can there be mercy? How can there be love? There is no sin. There is no need of grace, no need of forgiveness, no need of blessing, no need of encouragement. And do you not see how our society, when somebody violates their rules, they cancel them, they get rid of them. There's no grace for them either. There's no forgiveness. And so our society leaves its members in despair and destruction, leaves them under the oppressive weight of their own foolishness and offers them no hope. But that's not the catechism. The catechism is a much better teacher, a much finer surgeon who is not only able to say, yes, yes, what I have to tell you is this, you're in a lot of trouble. The disease has progressed greatly. But I have a cure, a cure that you need. And so we listen to the catechism as it teaches us about our need of grace. A teaching that comes in light of our struggle to admit that the fault of life's problems is ours and not God's or anyone else's. 
Now, now understand that it's not to absolve anybody of failures. There are lots of things that are done poorly, even wickedly in this life. Parents that mistreat their children, men that mistreat women. There are lots of things that are wrong. And we're certainly not suggesting that those people who are abusive, who are, who are careless and cruel, that they are not responsible for their failures. Oh, they definitely are. But so often don't we hear from that abusive husband She's the one that made me. She made me so angry. If she hadn't made me so angry, I wouldn't have hit her. He blames her. Or he blames his parents before him or the one that mistreated him, the bully at school that made him this way. No, we may not do such things. We may not pass the buck. We may not dismiss our own responsibility. In dealing with the question of how and why this world is the way it is, why people are so cruel, why people are so proud and selfish, why we struggle with our sins, we must either point the finger at others, that's the temptation, or admit the truth of our own rebellion, which is what the catechism teaches. We prefer to point the finger, oh yes, we do. We need to admit that too. We need to start by admitting, you know what, I want to blame God. I want to say, God, you made me this way. It's not my fault. You made me this way. I want to say it's because my parents didn't raise me well, because they weren't good parents, you understand. I I want to say it's because that teacher in school made fun of me. I, I want to blame everybody else. But this question and answer forces us to look hard into the mirror and see the consequences and the source of our own personal choices, actions, and decisions and own what we've done. Because the... The catechism reminds us that we were created good and in all things able to keep the law, in all things desirous of keeping the law. Which is, by the way, a revelation to us of both how good our God is. Think of it. He gave us every advantage. He gave us every blessing in the beginning. There was no gift that He withheld from us. And it's a revelation of how good we were. How God made us so very beautiful, so very perfect, so very lovely. No part of us desired to rebel against Him. No part of us wanted to, to, to live in contra- contrary to His will. I mean, you, you sometimes maybe see on, on YouTube those videos where people take a new product maybe and they take it apart and they... they, they undo it all to see how it's all put together and and then sometimes they say i can't believe this this problem with this apple product is still the same they use such inferior equipment here or don't you see that over here this this vehicle this this engine has this problem this seal is no good and so it's going to go badly whenever you tear something down you find both the blessings the good things but you also find the problems don't you you find the weaknesses and the flaws Well, if you were to tear down humanity, if we could speak that way, in the Garden of Eden, if you could take them completely apart, lay every molecule on a table before you, you would only end up standing in such awe of God and of a renewed appreciation of His brilliantly designed image bearer. There is nothing we can find in the work of our sovereign God in who we are in the beginning that is of any flaw. It is perfectly perfect in every respect. Which is also why there, there's such good in our world still today, isn't it? 
This explains why there can be so much good in a fallen world, why unbelievers can be moral, moral and why followers of other religions can be gracious and kind. At no point do we in the Reformed faith suggest that fallen man is as bad as he can be. Quite to the contrary, we rejoice to know that God's creative goodness still shines through in the light of nature in the brokenness of this fallen world, even as God restrains the wickedness of men. Yet if the catechism's right, as the Word of God says it is, then if we're created so good, how did we get so bad? I mean, God knew, of course, that we would sin. He knew that before we fell into sin. When he planned everything at the beginning, he knew that what would happen is we would fall into sin, his son would come and die, and we, in the end, would live with him in eternity. But knowing that someone's going to sin is not the same thing as causing someone to sin. So how did we fall into sin? As we've noted, it's not a flaw in our character. It wasn't a failure of God's creative goodness. So how did we sin? Well, we know the answer, don't we? We know the answer from our Bibles because the serpent came and spoke to the woman and she saw and ate and gave to her husband and he ate. That is to say, they made a choice. They heard a word. A word that called them to rebel against God, and they said, yes, I choose that. It was our choice to choose sin over service, to reject God and hate Him, to test His word. Remember, He had warned us, the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. We didn't believe God. We didn't take Him at His word. We didn't think He'd keep that promise. But the word of God teaches us that that's what we did. And you don't even really need the Bible, do you? I mean, the Bible is the source of this truth, to be sure, but all you need to do is examine your own heart. Why do you lie? Why do you get angry when you shouldn't? Why do you lust when you should love? Why are you greedy when you should be sacrificial? You can blame the world all you want. But it's you who makes that choice. You who wants to do that thing. God does not want you to sin. He doesn't delight in your rebellion. He warns us day and night. He warns us repeatedly. Did you not read what we read in Zephaniah? How he says, I have laid low the nations. I have made their streets empty. Surely you would see and repent. And your dwelling would not be cut off according to all that I've appointed against you, says the Lord, but all the more eager, or they were all the more eager to make all their deeds corrupt. The church in the Old Covenant chose sin, not because God wanted them to, not because He made them do it, because they wanted to do it. Just like we want to do it. When we do it, we want to do it. The fault of all of our misery lands squarely at our own feet. I mean, of course, there are other sinful people in this world and they can be harsh and cruel and deserving of great judgment. They can twist our spirits and cause us to experience a perspective of the world that's extremely flawed and perverse. But in the end, we are still responsible for our choices. 
Here's one of the griefs of sin we so often miss. We know that we're sinners, but we seem surprised to learn that so is our spouse, so are our children, so are our loved ones, so is the church. People say, you know, the church is full of hypocrites. Yeah, no kidding. It's the gospel. That's why we're here. Why is anyone surprised that someone else is a sinner when they themselves routinely choose in open rebellion to God to do the wrong thing? Herman Boving's right when he says that there is nothing rational or reasonable about our choices to sin. Why do we do it? It ruins our lives. It harms others. It pits us against the God who holds our existence in His hands. So why do we do it? It makes no sense. It never has and never will. But we do it. Our response, our reaction to the problems of life, to the challenges of this life, to the sinful people in this world, let alone the choices that we make, put us in the positions that we're in. I mean, think, for example, of a young man who, as he grows, associates with a slightly less savory group of characters, and he associates with them because they don't condemn his sinful choices. In fact, they encourage his foolishness. And he meets amongst these people a girl who, like him, is more selfish and more interested in being free from judgment, free from the rules, free from the limitations of this life. So she can express herself as she desires. And so content with each other's misery, they decide to get married. And surprise, surprise, their marriage goes badly. The wife is selfish. The husband's selfish. The children that come from the marriage are selfish. And in their misery, they in the end raise their fists to heaven and curse the God who has made them suffer so cruelly. Why would God make my life so miserable, they ask. Or they point the accusing finger of self-righteousness at their spouse, at their children, at their boss, at their community, at their church. If only they hadn't, if only they didn't, if only they wouldn't. Just listen to our culture if you think this is a foreign thought. It is always someone else's fault for what happens to me. I am never responsible. I am never to blame. Have you met our Prime Minister? It is never his fault. But don't even... Look to that. Look to your own heart. Faced with the truth of your own sin, where does your mind, where does your mouth go? Is it not to the other? How dare you accuse me? Who do you think you are? We can point our fingers at others for our failings all we want, but it does us no good in the end because we are left with the burden of our sins and their awful judgment. If we want to blame others for their failures, then fine. First, you stop sinning before you tell anyone else to. And if you can't stop sinning, then stop blaming others. But if we can't, if we can't stop sinning, then maybe we should look elsewhere for deliverance. Instead of blaming others, maybe we should look to the other who saves. Now, the catechism helps us to do that when it takes us in the second question and answer, question answer 10, into the question, will God permit such disobedience and rebellion to go unpunished? Here, the catechism understands something of the nature of humanity and the culture in which we live as well. Because since we know that God is uh, perfect and that we are sinful in all that we do, 
Maybe he, he doesn't care. Maybe he won't punish our sins. Our world very quickly runs in this direction. I mean, just listen to anyone who speaks about their loved one that's passed on, unless they're extremely callous atheists. Everyone believes at some point that their loved one has gone to a better place, has gone to paradise, has gone to wherever, to heaven, even if they don't believe in God in this life. Everyone says, my loved one was good enough. My loved one did more good than evil. And why do they think that God would let, that the deity, that the power that is, would allow such a person into their presence or bless them with some afterlife of joy and bliss? Because that's what God's into, isn't it? That's what God's about. God's about mercy. God's about grace. God's about love. Indeed, we do the same thing as Christians, only we add a gospel twist to it. We stick the name of Jesus to this error and this thoughtlessness. We say something or other about being forgiven in Jesus. And therefore, that's that. We don't wrestle with the truth of this and how that can possibly be. We don't ask ourselves how our sins can possibly be satisfied by the justice of God. We don't ask ourselves how it is that God can forgive us. Which is why so often our own piety and passion for the Lord is so pathetic. Because when Jesus is cheap grace, then our piety is pretty cheap too. The Catechism enables us to see that the grace that we need is not a grace that is cheap, but a grace that is profoundly dear. For the inescapable truth that the Word of God teaches us is that God is very angry with our sins, with our being sinners, and with our sin. We need to think about that actually for a moment because the Catechism does say He is terribly angry with the sin we are born with as well as our actual sins. He's angry with you for being a sinner and for sinning. That's what the Catechism is saying. And that's challenging to us because we often hear people say, well, God hates the sin, but not the sinner. And that might be true. It is possibly true, but it is not always true. It depends, I guess, on what we mean by sinner. Option number one here is that a sinner is a person who is identified under the dominion and sovereign sway of sin, a person who is born into this fallen world and never experiences the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit in Jesus Christ, is never redeemed, and so for the rest of their lives chooses daily to rebel against God, to hate Him, and to live contrary to His will. That person, being dead in their sins, is under the just judgment of our righteous God, and in their most intimate identity can be called a sinner. And whatever you want to say about God's dealing with sins and sinners, God hates sinners. Now option number two is a person that, who redeemed in Jesus Christ and regenerated by the Holy Spirit stands by faith in God as righteous and is the object of God's deep, deep love and mercy. This person is alive in Jesus Christ who nevertheless still falters and fails, still sins to our shame and daily repentance. And in this sense, in this sense that they commit sin, can be called a sinner, I suppose. Or maybe better, a sinning saint. Or even as Martin Luther said, simul justus et peccator both justified and a sinner. 
Now that's a sinner God loves. That God loves with a perfect love. Indeed looks upon in Jesus Christ as though they never sinned nor been a sinner. So it is, suppose, I suppose, somewhat true to say that God loves this or hates the sin but loves the sinner, but only when that sinner is one who is redeemed in Jesus Christ and justified by his blood. But notice that the judgment of God on sinners, that is option number one on those who are unredeemed, unregenerate sinners in this life, that judgment begins today. We tend to imagine that God's judgment is only for after death, but the Catechism rightly says God will punish them by a just judgment both now and in eternity. God doesn't wait for the next life to punish those who live in sin. I mean, the Scripture makes this clear on a number of passages and in a number of ways, and it's something that we ought to wrestle with and be aware of. Now, lest we despair and lose all hope, knowing something of the depth of our own sin, knowing that if this is true, then we deserve to be greatly punished. It is now tempting for us to rush in with the gospel message, which is the right place for the gospel, by the way, to soothe and and calm the fearful heart of the sinner. But let's not run too fast ahead of our teacher, the catechism, at least not too quickly. We don't want to cheapen the grace of God yet and twist it into a get-out-of-jail-free card. Just think, for example, about no-fault divorce as an example of cheap grace. No-fault divorce was not something that our country always had. But at some point, someone says, listen, these difficult rules that prevent people from easily accessing divorce are making lives miserable. Husbands and wives that don't love each other, that are at each other's throats, are living in misery because of all of these arcane rules relating to divorce. We need no-fault divorce that makes it easier for everybody in these miserable situations to get out. Who wants a mistreated wife to be forced to stay in a relationship with an unfaithful husband? One that prevents the cruel from, or rather, one that prevents the weak from escaping the cruelty of their oppressor. And so the world says, we need to be kind. We need to, you know, the reality is marriages break up. We've got to be kind. Let's speak a word of grace. No fault divorce. Grace into these miserable situations. And now what has that produced? What has become of no fault divorce in our society? It has torn the very fabric of our society apart. It has broken down one of the three pillars that hold society up and it has brought destruction into our culture because that's what cheap and easy careless solutions do. Easy grace is useless, dangerous, and deadly. It doesn't bless, it curses. For every Christian that is suffering with the fear of judgment from a God who loves them more deeply than they know, there is at least one, if not many more Christians, who claim the benefit of God's grace, forgiveness, eternal life, but are unmoved by this grace, don't offer themselves in gratitude to Him, living a life of, that is indistinguishable, rather, from the wicked. No, in the end, we must deal with the truth of what God reveals in His Word and in our confession, that God is actually very angry with our sin, with the sin that we're born with, the sin that we commit. And He will punish that sin in this life and in the life to come. That there are today, there may even be among us now, those upon whom God's heavy hand of judgment has come. 
And though we do not want to despair, we do not want to despair. We want to at least recognize that that our sin is a terrible thing. We don't want to skate over the awful realities of our own failures. Even as church, maybe especially as church, where it's so easy for us to say, yes, 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 the world is wicked. The world is going to hell in a handbasket, but we, we are forgiven. And so it really doesn't matter that we make mistakes. It doesn't matter that we rebel. No, it matters all the more. And so let us recognize the terrifying weight of our sin. And let us not stand before God and deal with it carelessly, but rather cry out with the publican, have mercy on me, a sinner. And let us accept that denying the reality of the problem does nothing to eliminate the problem. We can say things like, my God isn't angry with sin, or that's not the God I serve, but that doesn't change a thing. God is who God is, who He has revealed Himself to be, who He's revealed Himself to be in Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ hung on the cross. God condemns sin so passionately that rather than leave it unpunished, He poured it out upon the beloved head of His own Son. If you doubt how much God hates your sin, that God hates your having been born a sinner, then stand before the cross of Calvary and see His wrath poured out. You can, you can say that you don't accept His revelation, that you don't believe what God says about your character, but that doesn't mean God accepts your version of reality. It doesn't mean that our world is right. That our world is right. That everybody gets to go to heaven in the end. Oh no. The heavens will be filled, to be sure. The new heavens and the earth will be populated with billions upon billions. It'll be amazing. The number of people Jesus Christ has redeemed is not a small number. But, of this is, but this is true of all of them, that they have all been taken out of the dark depths of their misery and sin. And so to deny that reality is to leave people in it. To fail to acknowledge our need is to fail to cry out to Jesus for grace. And so we shouldn't cheapen the grace of God in Jesus Christ. We should always recognize its profound value and preciousness. Especially since Jesus Christ is the gift of our Heavenly Father who was so angry at our sin. Why is God so angry at our sin, by the way? I mean, it was just a fruit that man and woman ate. It's just a white lie that we tell our parents. It's just an angry word that we speak to our children. It's no big deal. We say this in our relationships, don't we? We say this in our relationships with each other when somebody gets angry with us. Whoa, whoa, whoa. What are you getting all excited about? It's not that big a deal. We offend someone and then we are offended that they are offended. We say this also in our relationships with God or in our relationship with God. We, we, we wonder why God, God, God doesn't get into it. God's not concerned about those little things. You think God in heaven who's watching the, the entire universe is worried about the one little thing that you're doing in relation to your friends or family? Or... And yet God says He is very angry with sin. Why? Why is sin such a big deal? Why is, why is sin a big deal to us? As we've noted already, the culture in which we live does have a sin that it condemns, the sin of 
disagreeing with our culture, the sin of hurting and offending anyone. And why do they then claim that sin is such a bad deal? Why do they claim this as worthy of condemnation? Well, they say because it hurts someone. And that's true. Sin does hurt people. Our sin hurts people. Because sin does damage to yourself. Because you're, you're, doing, you're, you're, you're harming your own spirit and conscience. And there's a truth there. There really is. Sin does hurt ourselves. When we lie, when we harden our hearts... It becomes more difficult to be honest and faithful and true. But in the end, what is the real problem with sin? Is it that it does harm to me? Is it, does it, is it that it does harm to you? Would it have been cheaper just to keep her? Is that the motivation that we have for working on our marriages and avoiding divorce? Oh no, says the catechism in the Word of God itself. The reason God is so angry with sin is because it offends His majesty. Remember, we were created to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. God is due all glory because He is our Creator, the Sovereign of heaven and earth, and He's done everything perfectly and well. But when we sin, whatever that sin, however big it is and however small it is, when we sin, we are effectively saying, you're not worthy, God. You're not glorious. You're not wonderful. You're not awesome. You're not God. Big sins say that. There's in the Bible a sin called the sin of the high hand. It's what Achan committed at Jericho. It's like a a, a premeditated murder. That's a sin of the high hand. And that was worthy of severe condemnation. But little sins do the same thing, you know. When we do little sins, when we scroll through our phones just for a moment, when we... Lust after that girl in the mall just for a moment. Oh, there's nothing really bad. There's no messiness about it. It isn't that big deal, is it? We get angry in our hearts with our teacher, with our friend, with our parents when we sit at the table. And maybe they don't see it on our face, but inside of us we are raging at them. We might say to ourselves, well, it's the big deal. Everybody does that. But what we're saying is, here's a moment, here's a moment, God, here's a moment that doesn't belong to you, that you don't own, that you don't deserve, in which I don't need to praise you. I get to do my own thing. I get to be free of you. I get to be my own little God. You need to see that, that every sin assaults God. It seeks to tear Him down, to remove Him from the throne of heaven and earth. It seeks to end Him and place ourselves upon that throne. And now you can understand why God's justice rightly demands that all of our sins be punished with the supreme penalty, which is eternal punishment of body and soul. For many people, that's too hard a thing to contemplate. That there is such a place as hell, in which place people for all eternity will suffer in body and soul, seems far too cruel, far too hard and harsh a concept to embrace. And it is an awful thing. And it ought to concern us. It ought to move us to call our loved ones to repentance and faith. We ought to be like that rich man who when he entered into the grave said to Abram, send back Lazarus that my brothers do not end up here. That ought to be us as well. But if you're going to pick a fight with God, 
And if you're going to say to God, I don't believe you exist, and I don't care what you say, and I refuse to honor you, if you choose to live a life of rebellion against God, then you get what you deserve. You get what you want. You get hell. Where God's wrath rests upon you for your rejection of His glory. All of which is to say we need to take sin seriously because our God is just. Because He takes sin seriously. The cross of Calvary affirms it. Sin is a big deal to God and must be to us. Precisely because there's hope when we do. There is hope. When we see our hopelessness, then the face of God that frowns upon us in our wickedness smiles upon us in His grace. The hope of God is enough to save us. It is the love of God in Jesus Christ. It is the saving power of God in the death of His Son and the resurrection. Sin is not the final word. Grace is. Jesus is. Salvation is. And on this earth will dwell a people for unbroken eternity with their God and with each other. But you don't get there unless you go through this. That's the misery of our world. That's what makes our world such a wicked, wicked place. Because it says to those that are struggling in sin, oh no, no, no. Don't look for deliverance. Lean into it. Accept yourself. Be yourself. The problem is with society. The problem is with your parents. The problem is with the church community that are condemning these things. The world says, don't seek salvation. Don't find hope. Don't be restored and renewed. Don't be comforted and encouraged. Live in your misery. Just embrace it. But the gospel says, there is a hope. There is a life. There is a grace in Jesus Christ. And every time we acknowledge our sin, every time we say sin is wicked and evil and wrong, we are saying, but Jesus is greater and more glorious and more wonderful than anything this world has to offer. When we repent, we're not only saying how much we need salvation, we're saying how perfect that salvation is in Jesus Christ. Let's ask the Lord for help in that in prayer. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, it's a terrible thing for us to contemplate the eternity of your wrath against loved ones that we have, people we know that are not living, in, living by faith but are living in sin. And Lord, it may be something that we, we struggle to accept. I mean, we live in a world where this is so foreign, a culture where this is so contrary to every expectation that if there is a God, and there probably isn't, but if there is a God, then surely He loves everybody. And He's going to let everybody come into heaven when He welcomes them. Lord, we, we pray that You would help us to resist the lies of our culture, that You would help us to stand against the emptiness of our, the spirit of our age, and that You would help us instead, O oh Heavenly God and Father, do what our parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, and all of Your people throughout all of history have done. You say, yes, sin is bad. It's bad because it assaults You and it offends You. 
It's also bad because it hurts us and hurts others, but it's first of all bad because it offends you. And then help us to sing your praises when we realize just how deep your love for us in Jesus Christ is. And help us to lift high your name. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.